Today's reading is from Psalm 51, verses 1 to 17. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach, your, then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my Saviour, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Thanks, Jay. Should we just pray for, for Jim before he brings God's words to us? Father God, I want to just thank you for, for Jim. Lord, I want to thank you for uh, his preparation during the week, Lord, to just bring us your word this morning. So will you just fill him? Will you uh, anoint him again? And Lord, help us to hear what it is that you're saying through him to us this morning. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Andy. I need to start with a confession, which is that it's not Simon's fault that the PowerPoint for Pete wasn't up. It was my fault that the PowerPoint for Pete wasn't up. So, um, but to help you to remember, I'm going to boot this football into the group. Is that all right? <laughs> Honestly, it's such a... Look at that. Oh, sorry. Just hit the guy with the wheelchair. I'm so sorry. That's, that's on video as well. I'm going to have to repent again in a minute. Sorry, Arthur. <laughs> yeah. Football, sorry, I do need to say it, this football team has been such a joy to me over the years. We've got such a unique opportunity to be able to share Christ with groups of lads that would not get this opportunity ever. They just wouldn't do it. So um, can I encourage you, even if you used to play football in the past, come along, support the team, pray for the team, support Pete. It's the first time that Pete's been running the team as well, so he's a little bit nervous. Uh, And just uh, be praying for this team, guys, because there's probably about 30 lads They've got nothing to do with church. And what an opportunity that is to share the gospel with them and to be able to pray with them and get alongside them. So please do that. It's really important. Uh, Before anything else, this is the favourite bit for those of you that are introverts. Please turn to someone that you don't know, even if they're three or four rows down, and say hello and introduce yourself because it's so important that we do this, church. I've been told that um, all of you that introverts absolutely hate this bit, so that's why I do it. (laughs) 
I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But it's good, it's good to get to know people and chat and learn new faces and people. So keep doing that. Um, so this is quite a heavy uh, sermon. You won't be surprised to hear. I've said this before about jumping in the shallow end and then swimming to the deep end. We're going to go straight in. We're going to cannonball straight in if that's okay. Um, just talking about guilt and repentance and confession. Welcome to Waypoint Church. Um, so, because I believe that this is significantly important for us as a church. I think it's going to become more important for us as a church as well as we grow as a family. A couple of weeks ago, if you were here for Adam's um, Preach of the View, you smashed it. It was amazing. Afterwards, Jean, one of our members here, long-standing members, uh, beautiful woman of God and incredibly well-known and popular amongst the church, shared uh, a great testimony uh, a great real word of God that she felt was for us. So something that I wanted to unpack today was based on that. So, are we ready? I do feel like I want to pray again, if that's okay. <laughs> Let's just pray. Father God, we come before you knowing that you're a loving God. You're a compassionate God. You're slow to anger. You're rich in mercy. You're a God who's already forgiven so many of us through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But Father, we recognize that this relationship with you is not just a take relationship. It might be free, our salvation, but actually you call us to a life of giving ourselves up for you. And sometimes we forget that. But I just thank you and I praise you that we don't have to earn your forgiveness or your love. That we can come before you freely because of the work of you, Jesus, on the cross. Just right now, Lord, I pray that you'll be working in the hearts, the minds, the spirits of everyone in this room and those online. In your name, amen. So a few years ago, I was having a conversation with some uh, young lads quite early in their walk with Christ, uh, and one or two possibly weren't too sure about it, and they were talking to me about this question, does God forgive everyone? Has everyone asked that question before? Yeah, and we were talking specifically about some of the big atrocities in the world, in life, in history. So like we talked about Hitler, we talked about those horrible scenes sometimes when you read it on the news and someone goes into a school and there's a mass shooting. Um, and as I was talking to them saying, yes, Christ, you know, through Jesus, you can, you can, anyone can be forgiven. But does anyone else still struggle with that? When you see those news reports, you just think, how could someone do that? How could God love someone like that? Yeah? I need interaction, church. <laughs> Because I, it blows my mind. I, I think some people are just so evil, so evil, and yet God says, I'm going to love that person so much, I'm going to send my son for them. So we, we carried on talking, and one of the things we talked about was, um, is someone too far gone to be forgiven? Is there sort of like a line, an invisible line, where you do like two or, th- really, two or three really bad things, and then that's it? And uh, one lad said, um, yeah, but that line is subjective, isn't it? <laughs> You know, because he said, I don't like lying. And the other lad went, well, I don't really care about if someone lies to me or not. And then someone else said, yeah, but if, what if someone accidentally hits someone in their, with their car, but they didn't really mean it? And we got into this debate about what is really bad, what is, what is kind of bad, all this kind of stuff. You with me? And it was a really interesting conversation. Eventually, one of the lads said, I just think it's when you just don't feel guilty anymore that you don't get forgiveness. And I thought, what a really intriguing thing to say when you just don't feel guilty anymore that you don't receive forgiveness. I went on to explain to them Romans 8, 1. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. That you are freely forgiven. That we sit here this morning 
guilt-free, that Christ took upon all the guilt, all the shame, all the sin, all the things that we're embarrassed by, all the things that people don't know about us that are offensive to God, he took that upon himself and then he gave us his righteousness in, as a substitution. It's amazing, isn't it? So then one of the lads said, so then Jim, when you sin, do you still feel guilty? And I was like, yeah, I do still feel guilty. Feel, feel guilty. And I just want to unpack that a little bit today. What is it that is going on, despite knowing theologically that we aren't guilty, that God's taken that away from us, we still feel guilty? And that's because I believe guilt, the feelings of guilt, have the power to do two things, to either drive us away from God or drive us towards God. And we need to remember, church, that we are in a spiritual battle all the time. So if Satan can diminish your guilt or your responsibility for guilt, for the things you say, you do wrong, whatever it is, then he's winning because he's going to create distance between you and your relationship with God. Now, theologically, you can't be any closer with God. We know that. We abide in Christ and Christ within us. But actually, the way that we feel has a huge bearing on our relationship at times. Satan, with distance, causes us to really sometimes doubt our identity in Christ, that we are forgiven. And if he can do that, he's doing a great job. If you can doubt that you're not good enough, that you don't deserve God's forgiveness, that you need to earn it again, then you're always going to feel like there's this huge chasm between you and God. But also guilty feelings can lead to repentance, which turns towards God as well. So you see in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, Adam and Eve do what they shouldn't have done. And they're embarrassed and they're ashamed of it. And yet in their guilt, God takes away in one question where are you that shame and they come out and they stand before God and yes there are consequences but I love right at the end of that passage where it just says that he clothed them didn't he he clothed their shame despite still not doing what they were told to do he clothed their shame 2 Corinthians 7.10 says godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and no regret but worldly sorrow brings death Worldly sorrow causes us to focus on how terrible of a sinner we are rather than how gracious a saviour we have. Godly sorrow causes us to focus on our saviour. But we have to have sorrow, we have to have repentance, it's important. So what do you do, church, with those feelings of guilt? Do you suppress them? Do you just bury them? Do you distract yourself? Is your life so busy that you don't get a chance to reflect on the day, on the week? Our kids are a little bit older now, but when they were tiny, tiny, we used to do this thing called Acts prayers at night. Have you done this before? Acts, A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication, asking, asking God. Adoration, giving thanks for simply who God is. Confession is the hardest bit. That's the bit that we always used to struggle with and Abby and I tried to be honest in those moments as well but why do we struggle with confession because of pride we don't like to admit areas that we have done things perhaps that we shouldn't have done or perhaps we haven't done things that we know that we should have done or we've had those thoughts about that person unclean thoughts bad thoughts negative thoughts gossipy thoughts We struggle with confession because sometimes it means that we're going to have to do something about it. 
Ultimately, pride prevents confession because it highlights our weakness. We don't like to be weak, do we? Do we? We're proud people. And we're British as well, some of us. We don't like to be weak. And yet, conversely, that is the whole Christian walk, isn't it? It's all about your weakness. Because the more we boast, as Paul says, the more he gets the glory. In our weakness, we are strong. Confession humbles us and gives space for God to do work. James 5.16, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. We don't like that. And I, I love the fact that we can confess to the Lord. But there is something about confessing to one another in a safe environment which is so powerful and is so necessary. And yet pride will often get in the way. So, Psalm 51 is a deep and personal response to something that David really struggled with, really, really struggled with. And it's a template for us to learn how to walk with God. The Psalms were the main songbook of the early church. They weren't out there singing Raise a Hallelujah or Graves into Gardens, as great as those songs are, Amazing Grace. They were singing the Psalms or they were reciting these Psalms as poems as well. This was designed by God, this book, to express and shape and form biblical feelings about themselves they would have known a lot of these psalms off by heart as well and they're given to us to act as a template how can we live our lives David wrote a lot of these psalms alongside people like Asaph and Solomon and other people as well a lot of you will know who David is hopefully he's the guy that defeated Goliath with pebble he defeated the Philistines he unified Israel he conquered Jerusalem he brings the ark back to Jerusalem. He receives visions, builds the temple. He puts worship into the temple. He's a great man, isn't he? Chosen by God. A humble man. And yet also, he's an absolute mess. <laughs> he's an absolute mess. This king, this leader, this warrior for God is an absolute mess at times. And that's the beauty and the power of the gospel. That's why Jesus gets the glory, because we mess up still. Psalm 51 is this deep and personal response from David after committing adultery and murder. It's big, isn't it? This account is found in Samuel 2 Samuel 11. I won't read it all, but basically in short, David, there's a great song by Lenny Cohen, Lenny Cohen about this. David sees Bathsheba on the roof, and he thinks, I would like her so he, after a few different things, he ends up getting her, impregnating her. He then panics and realizes that he shouldn't have done it. So he tries to get her husband, Uriah, to come back from the war effort, a war effort that, was hit, that Uriah was fighting on behalf of David. He tries to make Uriah sleep with his wife so that it looks like it's Uriah's baby and not his own. Uriah refuses to for lots of different reasons. We won't go into that. And eventually David just thinks, I need to do something to cover up this mess. How many of us have done things that we've covered up our mess before? We panic. And so he puts Uriah on the front line in the war effort, hoping that Uriah would die. And he does. How do you feel about that story, church? Shocked? A king? A leader? Chosen by God? Did you feel sorry for Bathsheba? 
for Uriah? You probably sat there thinking, I would never make mistakes like that. (laughs) And I hope you don't, but you might have done. And that's the beauty of God's forgiveness. But we do need to be real with ourselves. We do still make choices that upset others, that hurt others, that are harsh with our language. We lie about things. We behave in ways that perhaps if everyone else saw or knew that we would be ashamed of. The Bible says if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And that was written to a group of Christians. But this is my point. When we are hearing about the story of David's adultery, when we hear about people in the news who are severely messed up, and there's a lot of it recently, isn't there? When we hear about people in the church who are messing up, where, do you, where does your loyalty lie? <laughs> so often we look at the people that they've hurt. 2 Samuel 11 says, The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The actual translation is this, the thing that David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. God couldn't look upon David's actions that they were evil. In fact, in Jewish law, Leviticus 20.10, he should have been killed for his actions. There needed to be an offering, a blood offering. That was our blood offering. That was David's blood offering as well. But do we look at the things that we do despite being forgiven, knowing that we are saints, do we still recognize the things that we do as evil? Not that you are evil, by the way, if you follow Christ, but the things that we do can be evil. So often we spend more time and energy justifying our actions, covering up our actions, blaming others. We need to know that Jesus does delight in us, but he doesn't delight in everything that we do. How are we doing? (laughs) Swimming around? God needs David's attention. He's spiraled out of control when he's distant from him. So he sends someone called, you know, Nathan. Yeah, Nathaniel. A prophet sent by God to get David's attention. I love how Nathan doesn't ask a question, what have you done? He says this. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? He just assumes. (laughs) In other words, why are you disobeying God? Why are you doing what you feel is right to you and not what you know is right to God? Who would like a friend like Nathan? (laughs) But seriously, how many of us have people in our lives that are, are this honest with us? Who will say the tough stuff in love And I mean that, by the way, in love. You don't just get to go around telling people how they should be living their lives and they're doing this and they're a sinner. But you need people in your life that will be honest with you, will disciple you. Are you in life groups? Are you in a discipleship pairing? Do you have friends, Christian friends in your life that are actually more interested in your discipleship than your friendship? That is so important, I think. Are you a parent? Do your marriages look like a place where you can have honest vulnerability, where you can support and pray for one another? Nathan calls David out in 2 Samuel 12, 13, and it break, he breaks and he confesses. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. And this is the moment the light breaks in, church. I have sinned against the Lord. 
If you were here, I said a couple of weeks ago, Jean spoke this incredible word for us. There were lots of new people there that day, and I was worried about what people might think. Um, but since that, I've heard about and had people talk to me about how powerful that moment is, and it spurred people on to go and ask for forgiveness from other people in the church. It's beautiful when that happens. She said that all great revivals begin when God's people acknowledge their deep need for him despite already knowing him. I'll say that again. All great revivals begin when God's people acknowledge their deep need for him despite already knowing him. We want revival, don't we? We pray about it all the time. And God goes, great. How much do you want it? Over to you. Over to you. Let's have a look at your heart. Put it on the table. Let's get real. And then I can start to use you in powerful ways. When you're really vulnerable. When you're really repentant. Romans 12.1 says that our lives are to be a living sacrifice. If you notice in the reading today, verse 17 said, a sacrifice of a broken spirit and a contrite heart. So your lives are to be the sacrifice of a broken spirit and a contrite heart. I've called it a position of contrition. I think it might be up there. It means this, we don't take the forgiveness of Jesus for granted, that we learn to grieve our sin. We learn to understand that we can grieve the spirit. That we have a daily position of contrition. It keeps pride at bay. It keeps sinful actions at bay. Not all the time, but sometimes. Having a contrite heart means we keep religion at bay. Do you know what I'm trying to say with that? Not just showing up to church occasionally, ticking the boxes and going home. Recognizing your daily need for Christ is something that builds this incredible intimacy and proximity with him that makes it beyond a religion into relationship. It elevates repentance and it relies on and seeks the strength of God at all times. I want to walk through now the methodical step by step from this psalm, that's okay. Step one, turn to God daily. David said in verse one, have mercy on me. He turned to the only thing that he knew could bring hope. David recalls the words in Exodus 34, which says this, The Lord is compassionate and gracious to God, a gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. David knew that the Lord would forgive him. It all goes on to say, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. David reminds himself that there were guilty who would not be forgiven and there were guilty who, by some mysterious work of redemption, would not be counted as guilty but would be forgiven. He lays claim to the mystery of mercy. The mystery of mercy has a name, and that name is Jesus. And that's what we must never stop doing. I said this last week quite passionately, possibly too passionately, that I remember coming home from um, nights out where I was drunk and um, stupid and other things and seeing my mum on the floor in the front room in tears of joy um, with a Bible open and a notepad and just writing and writing and writing and writing and writing. And I, at the time, I thought she was weird. I'd be like, Mum, why are you crying? She'd be like, because Jesus is amazing. He's just paid for it all. And uh, it's so powerful. There's many things my mum told me, but they're one of those things that she taught me a lot in that moment. And uh, someone else once told me, Jim, your calling is not to your um, spouse. 
It's not to your church. It's not to your membership at a church. It's not about serving. It's not about your job or your identity or your house or that holiday or any of those sort of things. Your calling is Jesus. That is your calling. He is your calling. The more we can recognize that our calling in life is Jesus, not just to work hard for him, which is a part of that, but it is to sit with him, to recognize what he's done daily, recognize that his mercy is in you each morning, it begins to transform the way that we live our lives. Step two, pray this prayer, clean me, clean me. In verse two and seven, you see the importance of washing and cleansing. The Message Bible puts it this, scrub away my guilt, soak out my sins in your laundry. I love that. Soak out my sins in your laundry. You don't, a lot of you all know that my son plays a lot of football and uh, he's better than me already, he's only 11. <laughs> uh, but he plays a lot of football, we've got a lot of shirts and uh, we, we're regularly washing football kit uh, in our house. Um, they're always clean, but there's some stains that are just deep. You know what I'm saying? So they smell clean, they've been through the wash, they've done everything they should have been done, got the washing, all that sort of stuff, but there's still a stain there. We know that if we got a bit of vanish and sat there with a warm bowl and scrubbed it 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 and then left it and scrubbed it again and scrubbed it, eventually that stain would come out. And this is what I perceive repentance to look like, a real willingness to allow God to scrub you <laughs> to soak in his presence to allow him to lift things to the surface that perhaps you're not even aware of that you struggle with or things that you do and the ways that you hurt other people or more importantly the ways that you hurt him we already know that yes we're forgiven by the blood of Jesus but that's the beauty of it coming to Christ this is why we appropriate forgiveness because we've already got it it should mean that's why we ask for it, because we know it's yes and amen when we come to him for forgiveness. We don't come to him groveling for it. We know we're going to receive it. David had this confidence, and yet we still see, cleanse me with hyssop in verse 7, he says. So the priests back then in Levitical law would have put blood on the end of a hyssop branch, and they would have dedicated or they would have declared a house free of a disease that had been diseased for months and months and months. And David says the same thing. Despite knowing that he's received mercy and forgiveness and his sins have been forgiven, he still says, cleanse me. Cleanse me. We're not too proud, are we, church, to ask God to cleanse us? Because that's where he gets to do what he wants to do. Third step. By the way, the fourth step's a lot more happier. <laughs> Third step. Show you know. Show you know. Acknowledge the impact of your actions before God's. David knows that his actions are not right. They're like a tape. Sorry, not a tape. What's modern? <laughs> Spotify, a song that just keeps playing on and on and on and on and on in your mind, right? Something that's set before him all the time. I'm constantly reminded of that thing. Have you ever been through a season in your life where you're just reminded of something? It's just on your mind all the time. I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't be doing this. Don't. Don't ignore that. That's the Spirit of God. That's the Holy Spirit. He wants you to actually allow him to deal with it for you. He's dealt with the consequences of it on the cross, but he wants to help you break free from it. He wants to help you become more Christ-like. 
Verse four, he acknowledges that his actions are a direct attack on God. Against you, God, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil. It's not to say that he's underemphasizing the, the, the impact he's had on Bathsheba or Uriah, but it's against God that we sin. Church, when we do sin, it might hurt people, but do we hold that gravity that when we sin, it's against God? It's an attack on him. It's an attack on who he's freed us to be. Verse five, David does something that I think we all struggle with. I think the world really struggles with this. That this corruption is from birth. This is heavy. It's a narrative that the world, particularly nowadays, doesn't like to talk about or to think about. In what I believe is the new God of this age, which is self-idolization and self-worship. It's important to love yourself. Don't get that wrong. Don't get me wrong. But there's such a lot of love for ourselves. <laughs> Anything that's negative vibes and attributes bad things to me as a person isn't good for me. So I'll just gaslight that. I'll cut that out. I won't do that. I won't let that person speak to me. And I'll caveat this by saying that I do think over many, many years, churches have hurt a lot of people, a lot of believers, in just saying to them, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. You're not a sinner, you're a saint. You're saved by grace who occasionally gets things wrong. But we do need to realize that hamartia, the force of sin, the Greek word there, is out and about. <laughs> He's prowling around. He wants to get involved. Sin wants to get involved in every single aspect of humanity, from gender to sexuality to all other things as well. David knows that he's made in the image of God, yet he also knows that he is sinful from the time his mother conceived him. Sadly, I think this is something that perhaps even in churches we struggle with nowadays. People can use this corruption at birth to diminish personal guilt. Often you'll hear, it's just who I am. This is how God made me. <clears throat> God loves everyone for who they are. And yes, he does. But we need to realize that sin, you are born into sin. And so sin will have its way with us if we allow it. A just God loves everyone, but a just God hates sin and wickedness and will judge it. Are we a good church? <laughs> Verse six, this is a God-given seed of wisdom given at birth, formed and downloaded in the secret place of the womb, an intrinsic depth of understanding that God requires us to seek after. I'll say that again. God does something in, our, in the womb, in our conception, where he just says, you can follow me or you can follow the sin you're going to be born into. Romans eight says, letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death but letting the spirit control your mind leads to life and peace I'll say that again letting your sinful nature so there's acknowledgement there's still a sinful nature despite the fact this, these are Christians letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death but letting the spirit control your mind leads to life and peace David understood this battle and this is why the spirit is so important for us to lead us into truth 
to lead us towards the wisdom that we've been given by God in the womb. Step four is the happy bit. (laughs) A new direction. God revives you and moves you forwards. After turning to God's mercy, praying for cleaning and showing that he knows about the corruption of sin, David passionately recommits to being changed by God. And this is what I kind of want to point out here. Forgiven people, repentant people, people who live with a contrite and humble spirit are committed to being changed by God and for God. Verse 10, create in me a pure heart and renew a steadfast spirit. In essence, David is saying, I want to start over. I want to start over. I'm fed up with being blown around by what other people think and the feelings and society's values and principles. I want to start over. I want a steadfast spirit. Church, do you want a steadfast spirit? Where you were just on fire for the Lord? Because the more steadfast spirited we are, the more he will use us to bring glory to him. That's how this changes. This is how this all works. Your willingness to say, create in me a pure heart. This is kind of David's response a lot, isn't it? Psalm 139. Sorry, I'm jumping around a bit. I hope you're with me. Examine me, God, and know my heart. Test me in my anxious thoughts. See if there is an offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 26. Test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind. Wow. Imagine that every morning. Test me, Lord. Examine my heart. Lead me in the way everlasting. Verse 11. Do not cast me from your presence or take your spirit from me. I don't want to get into theology right now. This side of the cross, we have the spirit within us. When we become Christians, we receive the spirit of God. That side of the cross, the spirit tended to be over people in certain places, working in certain moments. But the sentiment is the same. Don't let me fall out of step with the Spirit, Lord. Don't let me fall out of step with the Spirit. If you're thinking, I don't know if I'm in step with the Spirit, I would just sensitively say that perhaps you're not. Don't let me walk in my own strength. I don't know if I'm walking in my own strength. Then I'm going to suggest sensitively that perhaps you are. Let me recognize and respond to your Spirit, the Spirit of truth that leads me into all truth. Verse 12, and this kicks off a series of events in the heart of a repentant believer that I think is then manifested. You can see it. David prays for the joy of his salvation and for a spirit that is joyfully willing to follow God's word. I love how he doesn't pray for sexual restraint. He doesn't pray for an accountability partner. Those things are good, right? Don't get me wrong. You should pray specific prayers and ask God to break certain things in your life, definitely. You shouldn't just pray for just general stuff. You should pray for those specific things. And it might not be sexual restraint that you're dealing with. It might be other things. But he prays for what? The joy of his salvation. The joy of his salvation. Why? Because the things that we do are just symptoms of sin. The root cause of the things that we do is because of sin. And so the more that you are in a tight relationship with the Lord, the less likely you are to sin. I'm not saying you won't sin. We can see this from the story today. 
but the less like you are. The joy of the Lord is your strength to overcome these things. Are you with me? So I say that again, it's important to pray specifically. It's important to have people in your life that you will be honest with and vulnerable with, but the more you get to be intimate with Christ, honest with Christ, and have the joy of your salvation, will be, you'll start to see victory over a lot of these things. That's real wisdom. David understood that. Verse 13, David isn't content to be forgiven or to be clean or to be right or even joyful. He's only content until the joy of salvation spills out into the life of others around him. Do you remember being a young Christian church where you just couldn't help people, can't help but tell people about your faith? Anyone experienced that before? Let me tell you about this guy that I've just met, Jesus. He's amazing. Let me tell you about what he's done in my life. It can fade, can't it? If that's you, in fact, if it's you that struggles to talk to people about Jesus, can I just say, make this your prayer? The joy of my salvation again. Remind me. We'll do that a bit later on with communion. But remind me, Lord, about the joy of my salvation. Because from that place, it will spill out. It really will. It really will. Verse 15, the joy of his salvation comes out in worship and praise as well. Now, I know some of you aren't musically inclined. <laughs> some of you aren't creative bunnies like myself or other people. Um, but David was also a warrior and a king and a shepherd. So maybe relate to him that way if you want to. But from this joy of salvation, recognizing what the Lord has done for him, it spills out into worship and praise. He can't help it. It's in verse 15. Again, if you look around the room and you see people that look abandoned in their worship, they look joyful. I'm not saying be fake, please don't hear me wrong. But if there's something in you, in you that wants to do that, go with it. Let, let it rise. Let it rise. It's an audience of one, not many. It's not a spectator sport, this. Let it rise. Don't worry about the people around you. And if that's just not who you are, that's absolutely fine as well. It needs to be genuine. It needs to be authentic. But don't use that as a reason not to do it if you want to do it. Let that bubble up. 